Welcome to Not Your Ordinary Parts, a podcast where we talk about hard things associated with the human experience with the goal of increasing awareness, growth, and healing. You may hear information from professionally licensed therapists, life coaches, healers, doctors, etc. This information is not medical advice or therapy and is not meant to replace actual therapy or instructions given by a doctor or personal therapist. I'm your host, Jalon Johnson. My guest today is Dr. Jillian O'Shea Brown. Dr. Brown is a psychotherapist, complex trauma specialist, certified EMDR practitioner and consultant, and an author. As an adjunct professor of trauma at NYU, Dr. Brown's research enriched her understanding of attachment injury acquired through adverse childhood events and the treatment of complex layered trauma in childhood. Dr. Brown uses multiple integrative healing techniques based on her clients' individual needs and strives to provide clients with the best possible therapeutic care by understanding each person in the context of their own unique culture, values, and life experiences. So welcome to the show, Dr. Brown. Thank you so much for being my guest. Thank you for having me. And I also, I just want to thank you for shining a light with so many people. Um, This is a very powerful and culturally impactful podcast. And I hope you continue this really important work. I appreciate that so, so much. Thank you for that. Um, Also, I gave a a bit of an introduction, but so that the audience can get to know you better, would you mind giving us a little bit of background about yourself? Yeah. um, So I'm I'm originally from Ireland, uh, but I now have a private practice in uh, New York City. And in the beginning of becoming a therapist, I noticed that for most people, their pain, their deepest pain came from their relationships, um, both past and present. And I became very curious about people's internalized negative beliefs, where shame comes from, where they learn these uh, painful memory, where these painful memories come from, and how negative beliefs get incorporated into the psyche. And that's how I landed on EMDR for unburdening and relieving trauma, internal family systems, which a lot of people are familiar with, which is your different parts of self, because a lot of the time when you're healing trauma, you're compassionately witnessing your earlier self from a place of safety. So you're working with multiple parts. Um, and then I also use somatic techniques because no healing from trauma can occur until you feel safe in your body. So it's a bit of a personalized blend for each person. And I'm really happy to be here just to spread the word and uh, circulate even more information for anyone that's that's on their healing journey or just in pre-contemplation. That's great. Thank you for sharing that. Um, and as we were talking, we, we got to know a little bit about each other. And I, I think that your background and just your knowledge base would be so beneficial for anyone that you work with because you have such a, a broad range of um, knowledge and the, the way that you incorporate everything that you know into what you do for your clients, I think is just so impactful and powerful. Well, thank you. That's that's very kind of you. It, it's really more, I'll always feel like a perpetual student. Um, mm-hmm. And whatever you read for fun or for interest, if you can turn that into your full-time job, then you'll never feel like you're working. <laughs> and you'll always want to learn more. 
Agreed, agreed. Um, well, something that you also specialize in is trauma. And because mm-hmm. of the work that you do, I wanted to, to ask a couple of questions to get your expert opinion on them. Um, yeah. And the first one is, um, in your opinion, why are conversations about trauma so important? Well, my definition of trauma is when your past intrudes upon your present and the unexamined history is doomed for repetition or to quote Freud, we repeat rather than remember. So I feel that when you start to talk about trauma, whether it's transgenerational trauma, childhood trauma, or, or different trauma patterns that are emerging in your life, by talking about it and expressing and in, inviting in compassionate witnessing to dissolve the shame and the secrecy, you're actually breaking the pattern and you're creating a new and compelling future. So the conversations and bringing it out of the darkness, it's a really important thing because if we don't actually examine our past, it continues to repeat in in painful and sinister ways. So the elixir to that wound is making it a really open, nourishing environment to talk about our traumas, our pains, our past mistakes, and the roots of shame. It can be hard to do sometimes, though. Um, so, <laughs> yes, <laughs> especially for people who maybe didn't grow up in an environment where having conversations about their feelings or even traumatic events that they have experienced was something you can openly discuss. Well, absolutely. Um, I think for many of us, you know, we grew up in environments where it was less socially taboo to to drown your sorrows in a pub or a bar than it was to actually have a real and vulnerable conversation and and showing your psychological achilles heel or your perceived weakness um it made you feel you know defective or weird and if every time you come to voice you're met with minimizing or you know don't say that and it wasn't that bad and You've no idea what I've been through. Um, you learn that it's safer to keep things to yourself and not take up space and not ask for help. And um, that's why I think this podcast is so important because you're kind of giving people permission to come to voice. And for most, the transgenerational messaging is to hide your trauma and, and suppress it and don't reveal it to anyone. <laughs> But trauma leaves behind clues and it comes to the surface in a whole array of different ways. So it's, it's hard to uh, bury your head in the sand because it, it will come up one way or another. So it might as well be intentional. Well, you just said so many things that I'm stealing. <laughs> Emotional Achilles heel <laughs> and trauma leaves behind clues. <laughs> that, those are good. Super good. Um, where, what is the origin of the word trauma? So it came from the Greek, which, you know, was the word wound, and it could be a mental or psychological wounding that occurred. Um, and then, you know, when we, when we think about the, the word wounding, you know, there's trauma and there's complex trauma. And I know you have a list of questions that I'm jumping ahead. I apologize. Um, complex trauma is 
is kind of like multiple wounding, like the debt by a thousand cuts. Like there's many different wounds rather than one big T trauma. There's, you know, subtle kind of sinister boundary violations, manipulations, communication deviance, loyalty binds. Um, it can be more hidden and sinister and subtle and beneath the surface. I think if we look at trauma as as wounding, it, it kind of gives mm. a different vantage point and perspective to what's actually happening, happening because physical wounds, I don't think a lot mm. of us would just say, you know, I broke my arm, but I don't want to talk about it. So <laughs> yes, if, yes, yes. if we look at trauma the same way we look at physical wounds, wounding is wounding. Yes. Yeah. And, and no matter how much you ignore your broken arm, it's not going to heal alone exactly. or, or it's not going to heal correctly or in an adaptive way. Right. It, it may heal, but it might heal out of place, which now means you're walking around with the, the effects yeah. of not dealing with your wound because your arm is well, you know, going in a different direction. Absolutely. As you're saying with this analogy, you know, if you ignore it and you don't take care of it, it might heal in a very maladaptive way where then other parts have to compromise and everything gets out of alignment and a little bit more vulnerable. And your, your psyche is not that different to the anatomy in that way. Hmm. That so is it's a good analogy. So, yeah. And, and comparing the psyche to the to the physical body and, and to the anatomy. I mean, I think that's that's all we really have to do in order to to have a better understanding of trauma. Because if your psyche is yeah. no different than your anatomy, then why aren't we dealing with the wounds that our psyche has? Yeah, why why is it that emotional wounding became a secret, sinister, shameful thing that can't be talked about? And how did we learn that? And how did that get passed down from one generation to another? Exactly. I think that's a, a conversation in and of itself. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wanted to talk about your, your book a little bit. Um, Healing awesome. Complex PTSD, A Clinician's Guide. What was your, your vision with yeah. this book? So the book was written in 2021. And um, I, a little bit of history, if that's okay. Back in 1992, Judith Herman kind of released a book where she was naming this experience of complex trauma, relational trauma. She spoke of prisoners of childhood, children that feel trapped, walking in eggshells in a volatile, unpredictable setting. She talked about intimate partner violence. And, and feeling chronically unsafe for a really long time. And it took 30 years of petitioning Bessel van der Kolk, Judith Herman to get it into, you know, as a formal diagnosis. And it didn't, it has not yet been included in the diagnostic statistical manual, but it did get incorporated into the ICD, which is, you know, the International Classifications of Disorders manual as a formal diagnosis in 2021. So I had been, uh, you know, working in the field of relational trauma and publishing papers and, and chapters and researching. And I wanted to 
put together a manual for therapists and for students so that they could really understand complex PTSD. And to, first off, when something's not a formal diagnosis, everyone has a different definition of what it is, and there's no uniform, this is the set criteria. So everyone was singing off of a different hymn sheet. And then to go into the evidence-based modalities for the most effective treatment, how it impacts the body, how it impacts memory, disassociation, relationships, how it impacts the clinical diet. So it was a very practical manual. But if I'm very honest with you, it was not the book I had in my heart. It wasn't the book I wanted to write. It was a very pragmatic decision. Um, you, you saw me quoting uh, or heard me quoting the, psych um, the psychological Achilles heel. I, I love the classics. I love mythology. And, and the book I have wanted to write and that I've written is uh, Merging Mythology with tra Education Around Trauma and Healing and the Psycho-Spiritual Components of coming from a place from pain into healing. So um, the first book was a very grounded, evidence-based, academic kind of project. And, and the second book is much more psycho-spiritual and accessible to everyone. And hopefully something that someone can say, I'm going to give this book to someone that I love and they'll understand my pain. And this will put words to my lived experience. Wow. I think if that is the the goal and the aim of, of what you want to accomplish with the book, that that is going to be life changing for so many people because oh, not everybody so. can <laughs> not everybody can put a name to their lived experience and articulate it well. So to have someone like yourself say, here, use this, that's such a gift. Well, I guess it's a little bit like what you mentioned earlier um, in terms of, you know, in the aftermath of George Floyd, it woke something up within you and created this deep hunger for knowledge and curiosity about trauma, pain, transgenerational legacy burdens. And you started to, through your own reading and researching curiosity, find words and a language to put together and make meaning of what you were experiencing in, in your life and in your family history. And having that shared language, it then gives you permission to have deep conversations. Um, and that is, that's very cathartic. It's very unburdening to finally have the words. And so many trauma survivors live in secrecy, silence and shame without the language, without the words. And growing up, I loved Aesop's fables. Do you know Aesop's fables? Mm -hmm. Like um, they would use little animals and they would teach life lessons to the animals, like slow and steady wins the race or, mm -hmm. um, you know, they'd use, they'd use these, animal metaphors to teach deeper life lessons and metaphors. And I thought it was really nice um, to use something that feels familiar and accessible and like a story to convey topics that we run away from and we hide from, or we say, that's too complicated. I don't want to, I don't want to research it. 
So I, I feel like turning it into a sequence of stories, it makes it and something you can share easily. I agree. It makes it more easy, easy to palate. Yeah, palatable. Yes, that was the goal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can't wait to read it. And um, I hope that anyone who receives your offering, that your goal is accomplished through them and through their ability to share it with someone else and say, this is what I need to tell you. And I wasn't able to, but here's the words for it. Well, I hope so. And I'll definitely be sending you a copy. <laughs> <laughs> and you'll have to give I will 100% do that. Um, I wanted to ask you a personal question. What was it yeah. that that got you into therapy and, and wanting to, to be in this field? Yeah, well, well, as I said before, um, trauma leaves behind clues mm -hmm. and you notice these, you know, symptoms within yourself in terms of your internal thoughts, your relationship with your body and um, how it feels to, to trust and to express. And, um, therapy really taught me how to feel, um, you know, being a person that was very emotionally repressed. Um, there was a point in my life when I bragged that I hadn't cried in 20 years <laughs> and that was a badge of honor. And I, I guess the, um, you know, the collective consciousness of Ireland, where I'm from is not to feel and not to express and, and definitely don't show your weakness. And, um, mental health was really not known about when I was growing up. You would say that people suffered from their nerves or there was something wrong with them. Um, and it was something that created shame or exile and judgment. And um, therapy was a very disparate and taboo kind of foreign thing to even think about. Um, and it wasn't something I became familiar with um, until I got older. And I, um, I was working with children in the child protection system. I was working with recent and retrospective survivors of child sexual abuse. And I would do the, the forensic interviewing for court reports, you know, in terms of getting as much information from them as possible. And our goal was to do very detailed uh, interviews where they wouldn't have to be asked the same thing again. Because every time you tell your story, it's re-traumatizing you will look at the person's face and say, am I saying too much? Am I saying too little? And your recollection of what happened diffuses every time you tell the story. And so many of these children, I felt like I really wish I could continue this with you and take the pain away. And they would ask, you know, do you do, do you do therapy? Do you do counseling? Um, and from there I decided to, I moved to the U.S. and I decided to formally get trained at the National Institute of Psychotherapies and Trauma Healing. And I've just been expanding my toolbox ever since. Whenever I get an interesting case um, where I, I can't help someone, I would, I would kind of look for the answer and, you know, do an extra training. And there was an early client I had uh, very early on, a young girl who was uh, very religious. And she came in with intrusive thoughts and her intrusive thoughts were that there was feces on her 
face and a soiled tampon in her mouth. And I knew to ask from my previous training, you know, it sounds like in a lot of these, you know, intrusive images and thoughts, the body is a source of intrusion and the body feels dirty. And was there a time when you had an intrusion trauma that made you feel dirty? And from there, for the very first time in her life, she disclosed that she had been abused, sexually abused. And her intrusive thoughts and flashbacks and night terrors, that was the person, that was the case that led me down the road of EMDR. And then through my clients, um, you know, some of them had more somatic-based symptoms. Some of them had, you know, different ego states or different parts of self. And over the years, I've just been continuously expanding my healing toolbox. And um, I've just really enjoyed seeing a person transform in front of your eyes and become unburdened from their pain, meaning they made of their trauma. And, and it's a bit like a, when, you know, Michelangelo said when he was carving the David, the angel was always in the marble and I carved until I set it free. I sometimes feel like I'm a sculptor and I'm carving away at the defense mechanisms. I'm carving away at the fears, the meaning they need of painful life events. And then underneath all of that is the true, real, unburdened person in the world. And when I see that, it, it gives me just an immense source of pleasure. And I'm hoping that, you know, with my books, um, that other people, that that goes beyond me in my practice and it's out there in the world and it's something that can be shared and, and maybe people can even create a little bit of that for themselves, even if they don't have the time or the resources for therapy, that by reading, you know, the books and materials or just sharing that knowledge, they can spread the word. I am so glad I asked that question. Oh my God. That was, <laughs> that was so amazing. Um, thank you for what you do. Thank you for, for the people that you've helped and for continuing to expand your knowledge base so that you can be so much more for the people that need you and for your clients. Um, I, like I said, I'm so glad I asked that question because it wasn't part of the outline, but the, the answers you just gave were tremendous. And I, I think just being able, that one story you talked about, the girl being able to help her with the abuse that you uncovered with her, that, that could be so helpful for anyone who listens to this and maybe suffering and not knowing what's really going on or having intrusive thoughts. Um, but, Man, thank you for that. That was that was so powerful. Well, you know, when you have a lot of intrusion on your body or in your mind, if you can lean into the discomfort of becoming acquainted with the wound and say, isn't that interesting? Um, because behind every behavior is a feeling and behind every feeling is a need. And if you can sit with it with enough curiosity and compassion, it will often lead you down to the roots of mm -hmm. the trauma at the beginning. And it's kind of like when you read a novel, the prologue of the story 
or the beginnings, the origins of the story. It makes it, it brings everything together and it, it, it makes everything make sense, you know? Well, you are, I feel, making sense of a lot of things that people may not understand or have access to or the tools and resources to be able to figure out what's going on with them. Um, and uh, I'm so grateful to have an opportunity to let the world listen to what you do and how you do it, because I'm fascinated by just listening to you and your stories. Well, th thank you so much. And, you know, I really appreciate that you're finding different healers and their different modalities and spreading the word and, you know, giving people a portal for resonance and understanding. I feel like a lot of people listen to this podcast and they come away saying, I learned something and I feel understood. Well, that is the goal. And um, if, if that is what's happening, that would make me so happy because I, for the longest time, struggled with trying to understand my behaviors and why, you know, I had certain feelings. And it was just like, I had a map, but I couldn't read it. So mm. therapy, therapy for me gave me the clues and the direction that I needed to go into to, you know, like we spoke about earlier, to find myself. And then once I found me, I was able to unburden the parts of myself and still am unburdening the parts of myself that needed so much work and care and compassion because of everything that I was carrying. And, and that is something that I wanted to share with anyone else who needed it. So that was the goal behind the podcast. And when I have the opportunity to sit with you and individuals like you, and I can hear the things that you're saying, I know that if it's still something that deeply resonates with me and gives, gives me so much peace um, and understanding that it, it has to be something that others will, will benefit from as well. And, you know, when you get that feeling on the inside of I'm in the right place at the right time, asking the right questions, you just know that you're living your purpose. You know, it's, it's a very special feeling to have. It is. It is for sure. All right. Let me get back to the outline. <laughs> um, <laughs> so much emphasis is being put on. Uh, our early years and the impact childhood development has on our lives. And you go mm -hmm. in detail about how children create an emotional map. So yeah. I, wanted, I wanted to ask, what is an emotional map and how can someone understand it? Well, an emotional map is um, when you're growing up, you make meaning of the world and you learn, you know, how do I trust? Who can I love? How do I survive? Am I lovable? If I ask for what I help, if I ask for what I need, will I be helped? Um, am I connected? Uh, am I good enough? Am I worthy? And this gets incorporated into the emotional map and we repeat these old patterns um, in ways big and small into adulthood. And these beliefs get reinforced over time. And what often happens in the case of trauma survivors is that with the emotional map, they've learned early on that 
they're not lovable or they're not worthy. They're not good enough. They're not in control. They're not safe. They're powerless. Um, they're defective. And this gets activated through painful life events or what I like to call the bite that fits the wound. And every time that that original pain gets activated, the compounded impact of the pain is is very re-traumatizing for an individual. And this is kind of the diatesis stress model of PTSD, where there's an original vulnerability, but then there's the onset of a lot of stress that kind of amplifies it and brings it out even more. So getting to know your emotional map is important because even if you've lost years of your life to trauma, pain, and shame, there's always a journey back to yourself. And going back to the origin of the story and understanding how you learned, you know, these beliefs and how you made meaning of the world, it's never too late to come back to yourself and to re-revise that emotional map and, and to start a new chapter of your life. I had never heard of an emotional map before your book and it made so much sense. And I was, I was really excited to give you an opportunity to explain what an emotional map is, because for me, it was something that yeah. was kind of like one of those aha moments. And I think that a lot of people can have that same um, response to it because it just, it just makes sense. It, it gives you an idea of what, may have been going on underneath the surface without really knowing it. It's kind of one of those things where you can put a name to something that you have been feeling and experiencing. Well, you know, that means a lot because um, I wanted to demystify the whole trauma and healing experience and try to make it really simple and easy to understand in kind of incremental steps. Um, that help you to identify the roots of the belief, the patterns, and then find a way forward. So the fact that it evoked a feeling of excitement and resonance is is really lovely to hear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I think you you did what you were looking to do because, like I said, that's one of those things that now I put a pin in, and I will always use the term emotional map because. Wow. It, number one is relatable and, and it allows someone to actually have kind of a word picture in their mind of yeah. how they could have been on a journey emotionally and yeah. they can piece things together. Absolutely. And um, in the second book, I purposefully didn't put in any diagnosis or any patholog um, words that would pathologize the experience and everything's very neutral. And in the world of psychology, the emotional map would be, you know, what's your attachment injury or what's your attachment status um, or negative schemas. But just giving really open and neutral language, it, it allows more people to identify with it in a, in a way that's not shaming. Layman's terms. Yeah, yeah. Just going back to, you know, what we all know. Because because language is interesting, you know, I, I feel like in the academic world, it's almost used to alienate and to create divide. And really, you don't know a topic well unless you can explain it to a five-year-old. So 
take away all the jargon, take away all of the unnecessary frills, explain it really plainly and simply, and then more people can benefit from the knowledge. Cool. And that's always the goal is to allow as many people as possible to have access to it and to benefit sure. from it. So. Absolutely. Um, okay, so another thing I wanted to mention is that trauma is sometimes yeah. compared to an onion because you have to peel back mm. each layer one by mm -hmm. one. Um, yeah. How can trauma become layered and what happens as you start to process and deconstruct trauma? Well, this is very interesting because um, one of my clients comes to mind um, as you ask that question. And in the beginning, when I work with people, I have them fill in this adverse childhood experiences questionnaire. And it's basically 10 questions that range from, you know, did your parents get divorced? Uh, was there a person in your family that had mental health issues? Um, were you ever hit as a child? Were you ever made to feel special? Did anyone ever take you to take care of your healthcare needs? And I remember with him specifically, um, he, he got a, a pretty low, like it was like a one or a two out of 10. But as we started to work together and process memories, memories associated to feeling powerless and not in control, and he started peeling back the layers and, you know, working with each core target memory, repressed, a bank of repressed memories came to the surface that really evidenced these feelings of power, being powerless and not in control. And the unconscious mind is such a powerful thing. And we sometimes don't get access to full memories until we feel safe enough to hold them. And sometimes, you know, or a lot, I've noticed that when I'm, processing painful memories because there's there's a quote from francine shapiro and she says that everybody has 10 to 20 memories in their life responsible for all of the pain and processing each memory with emdr or ifs is like taking a log out of the fire and as we start to take these logs out of the fire diffuse the pain change the meaning of the event compassionately witness the, the wounded younger child often what comes to the surface are deep rooted trauma. And I've had people that have experienced, you know, pre-verbal traumas that have come to the surface or um, deeply hidden repressed memories that were just below conscious awareness. And it truly is an onion. I agree with you in that regard that as you go into the process, you know, you discover more, but I like to think of it as exfoliation where you want to gently peel back the layers, but not be too aggressive or not expose things that might feel raw or too painful. You want to gently challenge, but also there's a duty of care. So in therapy and in life, that the duty of care versus the dignity of risk is very important, where you always want to grow and challenge, but you also have to take care of yourself and, you know, be gentle. You, you broke that down very well. And I like the analogy of taking the logs out of the fire or exfoliating, because if we look at trauma as a furnace with a fire in it and the mm -hmm. logs are keeping the fire going, if you remo mm -hmm. remove the source of fuel from the fire, it will eventually go out. And if we can look at trauma as that fire, 
and processing painful memories and peeling back layers um, carefully and slowly. And and if that is removing fuel from the fire, then the, the fire of trauma will eventually go out. Exactly. And what fuels the fire, as you said, is these memories that are unspoken about where they keep replaying the most painful parts, like a skipping disc or vinyl, where the intrusive thoughts, images, or the shame-based beliefs keep coming up intrusively. Um, and by actually taking them out and, you know, compassionately witnessing, processing, it takes away the power of those painful memories and they don't haunt you like they used to. I love how much emphasis you're, you're putting on doing it compassionately and slowly because that's so important. Well, you know, often when people come for trauma processing, they're saying things out loud for the first time, or it's the first time they've revealed something. And the childlike interpretation of how they felt when it originally happened is still very active within them. And children take much more accountability for things that happen to them than they should. Mm. And it's actually, you know, it's called the moral defense um, where you have so little control over your life as a child where you can't say this person's really toxic. I'm going to take a break from them. And, and the bullies in the schoolyard or the antagonizers at home are to be put up with silently. And you, you can learn to fawn and blame yourself. So when somebody's coming in with early childhood trauma, there, there's often a, a meekness and an apologetic kind of energy and a shame. And when somebody, you know, privileges you with their pain and puts their heart on a platter like that, the softness is key. The compassionate witnessing is key. I love that because, like you said, someone could be speaking these things for the first time and there could be so much shame and mm. guilt associated with the childlike parts of them that are needing to be unburdened. And you would have to deal with them similar to a child because yeah, yeah. that is the emotional um, age range, I would say, maybe that they may be stuck in, for lack of a better term, associated with those emotions. So giving totally, them that childlike compassion is, is super helpful. Well, if a part of you got stuck in a painful time and place where the event was so painful and the magnitude of it was so painful and the meaning you made of it was so shameful, a part of you gets frozen and stuck in that time. And mm. often when you are processing trauma, you may be talking directly to a person's wounded inner child and you can tell by their body language and their tone of voice and you know the use of language that they are really transporting back to that earlier time and that's when you know that you're going deep into becoming acquainted with that core original wound exactly um and kind of bridging off of this when i was 
researching mm -hmm. and learning about all of the symptoms, the consequences, the behaviors, and the burdens yeah. that trauma survivors carry, it made me think of um, the reality of what a lot of us are dealing with. Like th these these things are huge, um, and mm -hmm. trauma isn't something that you can just get over or that having a positive attitude would fix. And it made me think of like comparing trauma to a disabled person who may be in a wheelchair and saying to them, you know, stand up. And if they can't, then shaming them for not being able to, but they actually have a full blown disability where they're unable or unable to do it. Um, well, I agree with what you're saying, but also um, I believe that post-traumatic stress is an injury and not a disorder because I really strongly believe in the capacity for healing. And when that injury is, you know, processed with the, the proper evidence-based modalities, which is from the World Health Organization, you know, trauma-focused CBT and EMDR. And, and, you know, that will change in 10 years time. The research is always ongoing. Um, you can see real and meaningful change in people. So I really strongly believe in healing and I've seen it. I, I've seen people move through their pain into a place of healing and there isn't just post-traumatic stress. There's also a concept called post-traumatic growth. And you in particular, you know, are such a, an emotionally intelligent and astute and compassionate individual and some of that is not despite your trauma but because of it you know and you might notice that in the way that you parent or or how you were in your partnership that you've taken the pain of your past and the practice wisdom of living through that and you've applied it to creating a life that you feel proud of that gives you purpose and meaning trying i appreciate you saying that um I, I think that i noticed now that reparenting um mm. is something reparenting myself not only gives my son something more and better than what i received and and not to um associate any blame or shame or guilt you know i i just think that when you know better, especially emotionally, you can do better. So as Absolutely. I reparent him, I'm also mm -hmm. benefiting from seeing myself be able to give something that I didn't get in a manner that is done with intent and purpose and compassion. Wow. So, so being an, an attentive, purposeful, passionate father it has been a very corrective and healing experience for you because mm -hmm. it, 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 right. it, it's making you think about what it is to be a father and what is fatherhood and it's it's really beautiful yeah, I, I see it as a life lesson for the adult version of me and yeah. also healing the parts of my self that maybe didn't get what I'm giving as a child too. So it's beneficial on two levels because I get to see my son have yeah. 
um, emotional development that I'm also learning with him now. So in, in a, a few aspects of parenting him, we're learning and growing together. Wow. Because I'm getting some of the same things that he's getting now because I'm experiencing them for the first time also. What kind of things? So, for instance, I would get super uncomfortable when he would show affection to me because I felt that maybe Mm -hmm. I wasn't deserving of it or... um, Am I going to do something wrong? You know, I was just, I was, I was hyper vigilant in my acceptance of his affection because when he would show me affection, it would activate childlike parts of me that were needing to still have, you know, some, some work done or to be seen and heard. And now I'm actively able to notice the activation pause, regulate, and then accept what's happening in the moment and not be um, stuck in what can I, you know, what am I doing wrong or why is it happening or being just being uncomfortable. Wow. So, you know, going back to you accept the love you believe you deserve. When your son is affectionate towards you, you've revised your emotional map and you now welcome the warmth and the affection and it feels good and natural, but before it felt strange and unfamiliar and you didn't really know if you were worth it or deserving or you were going to mess something up and, and you've been, you've been healing yourself while you've been attentively fathering and loving him. So it's really powerful. It is. And I, and I feel calm now. I mean, I still, I still do get a bit of a, uh, activation, but I'm able to work through it and understand why it's happening and just let it go. Mm -hmm. You know, I can say, okay, I understand. I know that you think that maybe this or this or that is going to happen, but it's not just accept him and receive it. So you're able to listen from within and negotiate with yourself. Mm -hmm. Which is huge for me. It's huge. Yeah. Yeah. That's a a really wonderful tool of self-awareness to develop and evolve. And it takes a long time to be able to do that. It takes a lot of self-study and inner work to be able to negotiate with the earlier, more wounded parts of yourself and challenge yourself, have a willpower challenge to, you know, venture into the unfamiliar and trust yourself. I think just being able to talk about it too, um, especially without getting nervous or um, Mm -hmm. feeling uncomfortable, that is also when, because when I would explain it to people, you know, they would look at me kind of like, confused well you know it's your son and i was like i know like i don't i don't understand why it's happening but the more curious i got with the the actual feeling the more i was able to dive into it and and kind of get some um more information from it to to find out why it was happening and what i could do to correct it and be better 
which is really powerful because when we look at the different trauma modalities for healing, they all basically, you know, come from the premise of this internal wisdom from within and internal knowing self. And if you were to look at symptoms or ab reactions or defense mechanisms as, you know, information, and I'm going to listen to this information and I'm going to hear from it and understand it, then you know that you're really mastering, you know, your healing and your self-study. That's when you know that you're really ahead of the game and you're doing it independently. I hope I'll that's something hope. you're able to. <laughs> but I, I hope it's something you teach your son and you bring it down the generations. You know, you find someday he will be having an internal struggle or he'll be grappling with something difficult and you will guide him in terms of listening from within. That would be a really beautiful thing for you to pass down um, to your generational line. Yeah, instead of trauma, to be able yeah. to pass down tools. <laughs> yeah, to, to pass down. Be able to do that. Yeah, your healing wisdom. Yeah. That would be a that great would be a, a great gift. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. Um, I remember learning about childhood trauma and how it can show up later in life through behaviors, and learning that childhood trauma survivors will do anything to feel good. Mm. Um no matter what the risks are, even if it means losing their jobs, their livelihood, their families, et cetera. Yeah. Um, and it was something that they didn't necessarily have control over. It was just the, the behaviors would give them a feeling and that feeling was something that they needed or wanted. What mm. can be some other behaviors that can be seen or that you've seen in trauma survivors? So for a lot of trauma survivors, um, whether it's childhood trauma or big T trauma where they feel chronically unsafe or there's been moments where, you know, they've been cognitively hyper aroused or they've been in fight or flight. They often feel chronically unsafe in their body and the body becomes a, a source of pain, shame and intrusion. And they don't have the tools to get back into what we call the window of tolerance, or you could say when you feel most yourself. So a lot of trauma survivors will ritualistically compulsive comfort seek. They'll look for a numbing agent to try to feel good. And for some people that can be disordered eating. For others, it can be promiscuity or risky behaviors. Um, it could be, you know, sex addiction, shopping addiction, compulsive spending, um, substances and or, or even gambling and it's it's this ritualistic compulsive comfort seeking or numbing or distracting to try to take away the pain momentarily as a way to try to feel safe and in control and and no healing from trauma can occur until you feel safe and regulated in your body that is the foundational step of all of the trauma healing modalities and um you know these behaviors it's important to look at them you know through the lens of behind every behavior is a feeling and behind every feeling is a need. So, you know, the trauma survivor that let's say, let's say that they go through a stage of um, sexual promiscuity that puts them in risky, shameful situations. That's the behavior. It's a pattern of behavior. And the feeling is that it gives them closeness now and makes them feel desirable. 
And it's fulfilling a feeling of wanting to feel wanted. And when you examine it uh, with the trauma survivor, they realize this is antagonizing and rubbing salt into the wound and not creating any relief. Um, you're actually able to get to the roots of when did you feel, when did you learn that you weren't good enough? And what is the corrective experience that you crave the most? So these behaviors, these cyclical, self-soothing, distracting, numbing behaviors, they're, they're very much uh, part of the trauma experience. Wow. Um, the way that you keep showing the, the path to the root of the actual trauma is so mind-blowing because would you say behind every behavior is a feeling mm -hmm. and behind every behind feeling need mm. that's powerful so it kind because of brings that, you back. yeah that that doesn't leave any room for you not to address the the root cause if you look at it just using that yes you know you can't avoid at that point because a lot a lot of us we we try to avoid feeling our feelings or dealing with the, our root yeah. causes but but just that one simple sentence that burns mm -hmm. the bridge you you have to see it and deal with it well you know freud came up with the pleasure pain principle and we're hardwired to go towards pleasure and away from pain so i try to motivate people to understand what it is, you know, if they were healed from their trauma and if therapy was going really well for them, what kind of changes would they want to see in their life? How would they know? What would their life look like? And only when you feel motivated to lean into the discomfort, can you tolerate the pain of going into the past? Because nobody eagerly looks into a past of trauma and pain without the motivation of, well, what am I going to get out of it? How will this serve me? And, you know, I feel like you have to motivate a person in terms of what's in it for them uh, before they're willing to go into the dark corners of their psyche or the chapters of their book that they would rather never read again, you know? Yeah, that makes sense. A lot of sense. Um. What is repetition compulsion and how is that related to trauma? Mm -hmm. So that was, um, it's a quote from Freud uh, from the early 1900s. And um, repetition compulsion is our inclination as humans to repeat rather than to remember or to reenact and relive painful experiences. So the classic trauma survivor that would come to me they will have a core negative belief that I will hear in the way that they talk about their trauma. And it could be, you know, I'm not good enough. I'm not in control. I'm not safe. And then when you do the contextual float backs of when it was an earlier time, an earlier time when you were made to feel this way, you'll notice that there's a reliving of the same pattern over and over again. And, and repetition compulsion can kind of happen in many different ways. It could be that you grew up in an environment where you pined for the love who's the, you pined for the parent whose love you crave the most and you unconsciously married someone with those exact same traits. 
as a way of trying to resolve the puddle puzzle. It's a it's a type of pain that you know that you can live with. Um, you want to rewrite the past, and and the easiest way of me describing repetition compulsion to you is that if we were together in a big group and we all put our problems in a circle, and you could choose any problems again, we would probably choose our own problems again because. We have a desire to resolve them. We know how it goes. It's a pain we can tolerate. We want to relive the past. And, and for this reason, there's a human inclination to relive and reenact painful life experiences. And we see this with um, people that go into their past relationship history and they see a pattern of the same type of archetype coming up over and over again. Or it could be other life situations. And, you know, the thing about Repetition compulsion, or what I like to call is the bite that fits the wound, is every time this old pain gets activated, it can be really dysregulating for the person and their autonomic nervous system. And that is why, you know, going to the roots is, is so, it's so helpful because when you know where it all begins, then you can identify patterns and then you can understand better and make informed decisions. Because for me, Healing is operating from a place out of deep self-awareness rather than classic conditioning. This may seem like a, a silly question, but is it possible to experience trauma and not be affected physically? Yes, yes. There's a lot of people that, you mean that there's no physiological response? Right, like or, maybe it doesn't affect your nervous system or um, mm -hmm. you don't have any physical manifestations of the, the actual trauma in your body. Well, it could be that there's there could be a lot of sensation or there could be a sense of numbness where you feel disconnected from your body. It can also be the meaning you made of the event at the time and how it informed the story you tell yourself about yourself. And if something happened where the meaning you made of it was that you the world is not a safe place and you can't trust anyone and you're not safe and you're a bad person, um, then that past life event is intruding upon your present and that is a traumatic event. So it's, it's not always based in the body, you know? And sometimes there's, there is a, a body-based imprint, but it's more a numb, disassociative place where you learn not to feel pain or to deny pain or to suppress and decompartmentalize from pain. So, you know, trauma is very unique and individual to every survivor, and the cluster of symptoms can vary greatly from one person to the next. So if someone is suppressing or avoiding their trauma, they may not be having a physical or physio physi physiological effect from it in the, in the moment or at present, but is that something that can eventually catch up to them? Well, as you peel back the layers on the trauma, you know, first off, usually in a therapy setting, there's a present day trigger or something they want to work through. <coughs> Sorry, bear with me. No and it, it's not always body-based. <clears throat> 
for some people, it can be more the way that they learned to become maybe overly self-reliant and not trust or dependent and attaching without discernment. And it can be more behavioral and more cognitive than somatic. And the body, you know, it has to feel regulated and safe in the beginning of trauma. But if there isn't a somatic sensation or symptom, um, I don't go looking for it and I don't wait for it because if it organically comes up, it comes up. And if it's not there, then the manifestation of the trauma is more in terms of beliefs and behavioral patterns. Does that answer your question? It does. It does. Okay. Um, so I saw one of your posts on uh, mm -hmm. Instagram and it was something that mm -hmm. I never really thought about. Yeah. And it talked about having a high sex drive. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to ask, can a high sex drive be a sign of trauma? Yeah, that, that was um, an article uh, that I worked on with the Huffington Post um, where they were exploring the roots of hypersexuality, which is it's kind of, you know, addiction is a very fluid thing. And people with addictions will know that there's a ritualistic compulsive comfort seeking where they're seeking to numb or get away from pain. And um, in terms of, you know, having a high libido is one thing. Um, but if you are continuously in situations where without discernment, you're choosing sexual experiences with people you don't know or trust that are disrespectful or re-traumatizing, you could be reliving old pain over and over again. And again, you know, introception is such a powerful thing. And that's your ability to read with the body and say, is it a yes or is it a no? Am I choosing this experience? And a lot of trauma survivors will have a fawning response or a pathological accommodation response where they're so accommodating it's a problem and they don't know how to say no or set boundaries or self-advocate. And um, choosing partners without discernment and getting into risky re-traumatizing situations it's it's another form of indirect self-harm um from potentially somebody that wants closeness now or they feel some level of punishing themselves um so it's it's one of the many manifestations of the ritualistic compulsive com comfort seeking and for many trauma survivors that do have a sex addiction they're just trying to feel connected to someone else and embodied to feel connected with their own body. But, you know, in fact, you know, and I've seen this with my clients and um, they're feeling even more unsafe and shameful in the world. So it's, it's um, certainly something that's synonymous with childhood emotional abuse and neglect and something that absolutely comes up in the context of trauma treatment. Well, that is deep. Um, especially trying to feel connected to their own body through someone else's body. That, that is something I never would have yeah. thought about. Well, if you, you know, if you think of someone that grew up in a household where there was no emotional warmth and no affection and they felt very kind of maybe unseen or disconnected, um, often the unseen child becomes the promiscuous adult 
because it's a way of trying to get closeness now. But it's also uh, very damaging to the ego, you know, and, and painful. Oh, yeah, so deep. Um, thank you for answering that question in such a good and uh, meaningful way because it, it gave a lot of insight on what childhood trauma and not having connection as a child can, how it can manifest later on in adult, as an adult in ways that may not be the most productive. So. All right, so I wanted to ask you a question about um, beliefs and what impact mm -hmm. our beliefs can have on us. And I mm -hmm. wanted you, if you could talk about the example of Rodney that you mentioned in chapter seven of your book. Oh, okay, okay. So in the book, uh, Rodney is a person that, you know, he grows up in a household where, you know, there is a lot of emotional abuse. And, you know, that's what how he learns that emotional closeness is conflict and chaos and trauma. And you accept the love you believe you deserve. And when you're surrounded by that, you internalize the belief. And, you know, he unconsciously, below conscious awareness, gets into relationship with, pe with people that antagonize this wound and reinforce those old negative beliefs. And it's very much repetition compulsion or the bite that fits the wound where, you know, we will unconsciously find partners that are reminiscent to the parent whose love we crave the most and reliving that pain because it's familiar and, and you know, another type of love would be jarring and strange and you know what if what if i don't deserve this or what if i ruin it and um for for most people there's a very strong parallel between their current romantic life and the way that they were made to feel in terms of closeness connection safety nurturance guidance protection in their formative years so in the book you know rodney is a person that you know, the unexamined history is doomed to repetition. He has, you know, below conscious awareness, found himself reliving the same pain again, uh, reinforcing all those old negative beliefs. I hope that answered your question. It did. Um, it, I just wanted to give a little bit of, I guess, um, insight on how our beliefs can affect who and what we mm -hmm. are as an adult, especially if they were molded in childhood and they can have sometimes um, limit us in what we do or, or how we feel. Well, absolutely. You know, the internalized beliefs of I'm not worthy or I'm not good enough or I'm unlovable. Um, you can only accept the kind of love that's congruent to your belief system. So if you have a lot of these old painful self-limiting beliefs that haven't been revisited or you haven't been challenged, you're going to make choices that are in alignment with the unworthiness. And, you know, you're going to feel really uncomfortable asking for what you need, setting boundaries, having higher standards. And you're, you, you will often unconsciously relive the pain. And that's why going back and examining the history and unburdening from where you learned those beliefs is so key. Because beliefs are incredibly powerful and they shape your identity, your perception of the world, 
your sequence of decision making. And if you think about it with the journey of life, all it is is a sequence of decisions that are made one after another every single day. And the culmination of that is the life's journey. And we will always make decisions according to our values and beliefs. There it is. I, I think you <laughs> you hit that one out of the park because our beliefs, we I mean we are our beliefs and we make every every decision we we make is based on what we believe about mm. ourselves and and most of our beliefs are developed at an at an early age by our environments. So that has a huge impact on, on what we do and why we do it. Absolutely. It's very, very true. Um, so there was something that you said that I want to quote. And you said, we mm -hmm. were all once children and still that mm -hmm. inner child resides within us. But most adults are unaware of this. This lack of conscious relatedness to the inner child is precisely where so many emotional, behavioral and relational difficulties stem from. So if someone is unaware of this, what can they do with the awareness now to connect and heal with that inner child? Well, uh, thank you for sharing that quote. Um, I, I feel partially responsible for that. It, it's also paraphrasing, you know, some of the work of Carl Jung, who, who invented the inner child archetype. Um, so in terms of listening from within, um, there might be parts of your life that you feel really comfortable and confident in. And then there might be parts that create a lot of fear and uncertainty and insecurity and, and listening from within and kind of hearing from your earlier self. And, you know, when there are avoidance or self-sabotage or numbing behaviors to kind of say, isn't that interesting? And, you know, again, going back to what we said before about behind every behavior is a feeling and behind every feeling is a need. Most of those needs are around safety, nurturance and guidance. They're very basic human needs. I want to feel loved. I want to feel safe. I want to feel protected. I want to feel connected. And these are basic needs that should be fulfilled in childhood. And when they're not, when they're chronically unmet and there's an insatiable hunger, um, they often come out in adulthood in, in a, a whole array of different ways. So, you know, go with the clues or go with the, you know, the perceived present day triggers or problems. And it will always guide you back to the origins and that inner child that exists within everyone. And um, it really just wants a compassionate witness and a steadiness and a guiding, uh, just like any child. And, um, you know, connecting with it will help you to grow beyond your wildest measure. So I, I encourage a lot of people to go within. And, um, in my, on my Instagram uh, and TikTok, um, I, I, I share a lot of exercises in terms of getting in touch with your inner child, very simple journal techniques, meditative prompts. Um, and these are things that you can do by yourself or you could do with a friend or you could bring them into the therapy room. Um, and they're just little portals or little avenues of, of getting connected and, and going back to 
you know, the prologue of your story and where it all began. So kind of building off of the um, tools that you just said that you share on social media, last question I wanted to ask mm -hmm. you is if you could use your platform to encourage someone who may be struggling with feeling uncomfortable mm -hmm. or their their big feelings and emotions and they, they want to talk to someone, but they don't know where to start or where to begin, what would you say to them? That's a really good question. Um, so first off, I would hope that if someone stumbled across my page or my work, that they would start to have the realization of, you know, my past is intruding on my present. And it's not that there's something wrong with me, but something happened. And, you know, sometimes people, their life is on hold because they're waiting for an apology from the person that hurt them. Or they're waiting for that person to evolve emotionally or take ownership and accountability. And that for many never happens. And the healing has to come from within first. And you can't have your life on hold while you wait for your abuser or your antagonizer to reform their character. The healing begins within you. And, you know, whether you're exposing yourself to the teachings of trauma, you know, online that are free available resources, or there's a close friend that maybe you have a shared trauma with or a deep resonance that you can begin to privilege or you've decided that you feel ready enough to go to therapy um, or even as simple as going to the yoga mat. I'm also um, a registered yoga teacher and anything that helps you to feel connected with your body and shows up with yourself in a caring, compassionate way is, is a big step. And there are so many different avenues that will lead you down the healing pathway and it's individual for every person. Um, and I hope that the person has a sense of joy and optimism and curiosity as they try many different ways of getting to know their wound and healing their symptoms and, you know, connecting with others in a deep and more meaningful way. Um, but I, I would caution people not to put their whole life on hold um, for the apology that they've been waiting for that may never come. Thank you for that. Um, I, I'm so grateful to have had the opportunity to do this with you. I love this conversation. I think we talk about so many things that are um, deeply helpful and meaning to or meaningful to a lot of people who may need them. And um, I'm, I'm really glad that you agreed to do this with me. Well, thank you so much for having me. And I was really impressed when you told me before we started speaking that you single-handedly are responsible for uh, upwards of 25 people beginning their healing journey, going to therapy. That's, that's amazing. And I'm sure you're reaching many more people with this podcast and shining a light in terms of having conversations and taking ownership over the past and, and rewriting your story to attentive um, intentional parenting and purpose. Um, so I really appreciate what you're doing and, and thank you so much for sharing this platform with me.
I uh, appreciate that. Um, if if people wanted to find you online or on social media, where can they find you? So I am mainly on I'm on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Um, and I'm under the name Dr. Jillian O'Shea Brown. The Jillian is with a G, so that's a bit of a curveball. Um, but I'm hoping as well that you're able to maybe link some of my information underneath. Um, but I, I like to share psychoeducation tips and meditations. And I also have an email list. So um, if you arrive on my page or on my Instagram, um, there's a newsletter that goes out and it's, it's new and emerging research or tips and tricks in terms of wellness. And, you know, just sharing the knowledge and helping people in their own journey of um, self-study and healing. And where can they find your book and when will your second book be released? Oh, uh, so my first book is in Amazon, Barnes and Noble and Waterstones, if anyone's listening in Europe. Um, and then my second book, uh, the, the date of release is to, to be decided, but I will have all of the information mainly on my Instagram and TikTok. Um, so, it, you know, all will be revealed shortly. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for bringing that up and I'll be sending you a copy I appreciate that alright well again I want to say thank you for this it's been deeply enriching and so meaningful and um, has provided a wealth of knowledge and tools and education so I'm grateful um, and I want to just say again thank you for who you are for what you do and for how you do it thank you and um, you you have a forever fan of your podcast, and I hope that you continue to shine this light. <laughs>